right, well, good to see you this morning. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18. As I was reading this morning, it dawned on me that perhaps where I'm reading for my own reading might parallel the Torah portion, and it just so happened it did. Uh, and there were some good things in it where I started reading that made me think, well, maybe I'd like to preach on something out of here rather than what I was going to preach on. So then I went online to find out what the Torah portion was. And so the Torah portion for today is Genesis uh, 18 and Genesis 22. And basically, I, I just we're going to read through it, and I'm going to add some comments as we go along the way. I've titled this section, really, Man at His Worst, God at His Best. Because as I was reading through all this, the, the dichotomy between the condition of the people and then God himself and having to interact with these people, it just dawned on me that really in this section, in many ways, we're seeing man at his worst and then God having to act and, uh, we'll say react, although he doesn't, but God intervene and, and uh, react as to what's going. You really see God, I think, at his best if you just follow with that thought, not that you never see God at his worst, obviously, but it just, to me, the dichotomy as to what was going on through this section just really showed me the depravity of man and the incredible goodness of God. So we're just going to kind of work through this. I'll try not to drag it out. Uh, and Not that this is shooting from the hips, but some of it probably is because I just decided to do this this morning. So let's pray. And then we'll proceed. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for this section of scripture, this week's Torah portion. It really just encouraged me uh, to just see how your love is so all-encompassing and that you are a just God and you always do what is right. And even sometimes when we as your people are at our worst, we see you at your best, meaning I just think it's unbelievable how you just are still able to love us, even at our worst. Whereas me, when I read through this passage of Scripture, I just think, you know, I would have handled things a little bit differently. But thank you that you're showing us that you are our Abba Father. And for those of us that are in Messiah, in Christ, uh, we have this sure relationship with you because of him. So, Father, I pray that you'll be glorified as we look at your word this morning, that Yeshua will be high and lifted up, and that you will use your word to conform us to be more like your son, Yeshua, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. So, you know, this is coming off of the heels where in chapter 17 it's all about the covenant of circumcision. And when you're at the end of uh, chapter 17, verse 23, it says, And Abram, Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto them. And we're, this gives us kind of a time frame as to where to hang our hat for the next couple chapters. 24 says, And Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his house, born in the house and bought with money of the stranger, were circumcised with him. So that's the backdrop as to now kind of where how old Abraham is, how old Ishmael is. And then it, it, it kind of springboards from that into this. So uh, these passages that we're looking at are very, very well known. I mean, they're, they're highlighted passages of Scripture, some of it hotly debated. And there's a section in here that is really, in my estimation, ripping our nation apart and getting us very close to the uh, edge of bringing us to God's judgment upon us as a nation and even on Israel itself. And uh, I think you'll see some of that when we get there. So let's just, just read through this, and, and I'll make some comments along the way. It says, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, this is Abraham, 
And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. I can't help it, but my mind just goes to <laughs> the number two reality of my life being Star Trek. It's like, you know, the mothership just beamed these down to the earth. Because to me, it's just like they just appear. You know, and this is like one of the early transporter moves. You know, Scotty's up there in heaven, and he just beams them down. And, but that, to me, that's how it is, because verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. It's like, whew, where'd they show up from? And so I think it probably lets Abraham know something is a little different here. So it says, verse 3, and said, My Lord, if now I had, have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. So, I mean, he's just a great host. It's probably a typical thing to do, but I'm not quite like that. I, I just, to me, this is like good old southern hospitality. You know, here it goes on and it says, uh, verse 6, And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. And I, I've, I know I've shared this stuff with my family before, but when I read verse 8, butter and milk and the calf, it, it just, you know, this whole thing of hospitality, it just takes me back to when Judy and I were uh, back down, you know, down south working in the, the new Christian school at the church where we were. And the, the neighbors directly across the street from where we lived went to our church. And so Richard, is Richard and Mary Hill, Richard invited me over one night. I don't know why Judy didn't go, if she was sick or something, I can't remember. But they invited me over after supper to have like, I don't know, a little after dinner snack or meal or something. So we sit down. At, their house was a very small house, probably no bigger than this whole room in many ways. We sit at the table, and in front of me, is an onion, cornbread, an empty bowl, and a thing of buttermilk. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what in the world do I do with any of this? <laughs> you know? And but I tried to be gracious because I knew this was, you know, something special. So I kind of sit back, wait a little bit, see what they're gonna what Richard's gonna do, and he's sitting on my left and I'm sitting on his right, and we're at the little table in the tiny kitchen. And um he knows that I don't know what to do with this, so he says, yeah, you take your corn milk, uh, your cornbread, pour some milk into your bowl, you dip the cornbread into the milk, you eat it, and you take a bite of onion. <laughs> the meat, onion is like a slice you put on something. It's not you eat it like an apple. So I'm watching him, and sure enough, that's what he does, and he takes that onion in his hand, and Richard had humongous hands, and just bites into that onion and takes a bite out of it. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just not going to be good. But I'm being gracious, and I do it, and I, I, I never did finish it. And, and Richard always laughs to this day that I think the next day I got sick or something was throwing up. It might have been just a coincidence. But when I read they took the butter and the milk and the calf and dressed it and set it before them, I always go back to that. Because to them, that was an act of hospitality. Come on over and eat with us. And that's kind of what Abraham's doing. See, he, he recognizes these people, show up on the scene, and so come, let me take care of you. Let me provide something for you. So verse 9. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which is behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of woman. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself. In case I forget to say it, I think it's important to note that God knows what goes on inside of us. It just does. I, I wish it wasn't that case, but I mean, I'm glad he does at times because he knows our heart. But 
God knows when we laugh within ourselves. And so therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? I love this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I have to admit, sometimes I do think some stuff is just too hard for the Lord, meaning not that he can't do it, but I don't always envision God stepping in in the midst of the hard times to do what God is going to do. But we find out in reading through this section in in uh, uh, Genesis that God does intervene. God does step in and does miraculous things on our behalf. And if we don't seem to notice or understand or see the hand of God acting in such a way that we can recognize, it doesn't mean that he isn't at work. And it doesn't mean that he isn't doing things or this is all preparatory for what he is going to do in our lives and through our lives, maybe somewhere down the road. So nothing is too hard for God, even though we don't see him. Like I can think of somebody in our immediate family, his father's dying of cancer. Well, is it too hard of a thing for God to heal his father, who is a believer, from this cancer that's going to take his life? Well, no, it's not too hard. And I think, well, why, God, don't you do that? Well, it's not because it's not too hard for him. It's because he has another plan that he is working out that to us sometimes humanly doesn't make any sense. But God can do all things. And even if he doesn't seem to act on our behalf, right then it doesn't mean God isn't involved. So verse 14. At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. You know, okay, so here you start to see the humanity of God's people. She flat out lied, right? It's just a lie. And, and, not, and it's not like I'm going to tell Paul a lie. I mean, she's lying to these visitors, which are surely from another world. She's actually lying to God. Um, and, and so as we get into this and we see the humanity of man, I find, in a, maybe I hope it's a good way, I find consolation to realize that even those people that God highlighted as being his special chosen ones still struggled with the same elements that we struggle with. Lying, for example. So Sarah denied it. So verse 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. So now we're getting into this passage, which I'm sure you're going to recognize. And Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, uh, sorry, become a great and mighty nation, and I love this, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And all the nations of the world have been fighting against that because to admit that you are blessed through Abraham is to put yourself under somebody else. And the world has fought against the fact that they don't want to be under Abraham because that's acknowledging that the God that Abraham serves is a true God and they need to submit to him. But the blessing on all nations is on those who will submit themselves. And that's the struggle. Verse 19. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. That the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, we have to understand it is sin that God is upset with, and it's very grievous what they were participating in and what had permeated the whole society in which these people lived. It is sin. It's become chic, I think, in the Messianic movement to say the reason why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah is because they were inhospitable. And I know the passage they go to. <laughs> but it's not inhospitality that got God angry and decides to have to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It's because the acts that they were participating in that permeated the whole society was sin, and it was very grievous. 
America is struggling with this sin. Tel Aviv is struggling with this sin. And, and God, because this has a way of permeating society, it gets God's special attention. 21. I will go down now, you see now where God is just, and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord, Yehovah. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure, there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? So it's interesting. God, Abraham's praying, in essence, is what he's doing. He's trying to intercede on the behalf of other people, and we're going to find out because it's Lot. Verse 25, that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So he's really calling God to act in accordance with his word. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty. And he said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communion with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. I just love this because this is a great example how to pray. I mean, have you ever come to God so often about the same thing? You just have to be thinking he's annoyed with you. Or it's like, enough is enough. You know, Paul prayed three times. It didn't happen. He quit. You know, how many times are you going to pray about this over and over and over? I don't think we wear out God. I, I, I don't think that he's angry because we come to him uh, with importunity, as it talks about in Luke. You know, persistence, coming, knocking, seeking, asking, ask, seek, and knock. You know, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, and God wants us to. He doesn't necessarily always answer our prayers how we're asking him to, but we can rest assured that he's not turning a deaf ear to our prayers, that he's not off busy with somebody else. And, and you know, I, I, got, I got myself into a, a, a funk, uh, you know, for a period of my Christian existence where it's like, oh, God, my little trivial problems are nothing. You've got all this stuff all over in this other part of the world to deal with. And I'm sure, you know, you don't need to be bogged down with my little insignificant stuff. But that's not the God we serve. You know, there may be, you know, if you have a family and you have five kids, one may be really, really sick and needing a lot of your attention, but the other kids still get your attention and you don't, be, don't begrudge having to take care of them. Well, that's how God is with us. He is willing to listen. All right, so ver uh, chapter 19. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. Perhaps this is a position of some prominence. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them and bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. So he's trying to be the good host, just kind of like Abraham did. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. Now Lot knows that's not a good idea. So he presses the issue. Verse 3, and he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. It was pervasive. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. 
and we know what that means. They want to have carnal relationships with these men, men upon men. All right. Uh, verse six. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him, and said, "I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly." Now look at the solution he comes up with. And this is a guy that God is going to deliver on the behalf of Abraham who asked. So we get now to verse 8. Remember, I'm talking about man at his worst, God at his best. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. If anything, Lot was showing too much hospitality, <laughs> you know. I mean, Judy and I read this last night, and I said, gosh, I said, at least I'm not as bad as Lot was. I mean, what a solution. It would be like taking, your, you know, my girls when they were, I don't know, 18 and 16 and saying, yeah, guys, have at it. You know, i got to protect these, these people here, but, you know, I know what you want to do, but don't do it. Here, have my daughters. I mean, does this not ring bizarre to you? You know, how could any person think of even such thing? And we're told in the, in the New Testament that uh, righteous Lot's soul was vexed by the conversation, the conduct of the people in which he lived, but seemed to have no problem with saying, take my two daughters and, you know, have your way with them, guys. Well, they didn't want that anyway. Uh, so, let's see, nine. Uh, nine, thank you, and they said, stand back, and they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn, and he will needs be a judge, now will we deal worse with thee than with them, and they pressed sore upon the man, even a lot, and came near to break the door, but the men put forth their hand, and pulled out into the house to them, and shut the door, this is when I start thinking, no, if I was them, I would have shut the door and said, here, lot, you think it's such a great idea? Spend the night out there yourself with these guys, right? Man at his worst, God at his best. I would have handled things differently, but God has a plan that is different than ours. Uh, okay, verse 11. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house of blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find a door. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law, and thy sons, and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke unto his sons-in-law. Most likely that means they were betrothed, but they hadn't evidently consummated the marriage yet. So Lot went out and spoke uh, spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord would destroy the city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. He lost all credibility. You know, we have to be careful that doesn't happen. We can start going down a road that's going to bring us to a place where our words, especially when they're needed, are not going to carry any weight. If any time people needed to listen to Lot, it was now. But his life, his testimony was such that it just seemed like a big joke. You know, you're living here. You know, they're privy to what's going on, and yet you're trying to give us a warning? <laughs> you're crazy. Verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, you know, why do we hang around in our sins so long? Why don't we act when God says act? Why is it we drag it out? It's got to be part of the human equation. Why is he hanging around? It's time to get out. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest we be consumed. And Lot said unto them, Thanks for the great advice, I'll follow it. No. He says, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. 
and I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee into. And it is a little one. Makes me think the little fox is spoiled of vine. The little leaven leavens a whole lump. It's just a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Hasty, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou be come thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. He just wiped it out. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And that's all there is. I wish there was more to that. We get this one sentence. You know, Lot's wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. I want more description. How did this happen? But we don't get it. Verse 27. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as a smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. That means he acted on Abraham's behalf. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. I mean, it's incredible. He did this on the behalf of Abraham. Our prayers do have impact. I don't know that Abraham knew right now that Lot was spared, but that's what he asked for. God acted on behalf of his prayers and saved Lot. Not necessarily for Lot's sake, but he did it for Abraham's sake. And I find great encouragement in that. That somehow our prayers can cause Almighty Yehovah to move on our behalf. I don't understand that. But he does do that. And he did that for Abraham here. And we can't lose heart in prayer. We can't give up. All right, verse 30. So if, it, if it's not bad enough, it goes from bad to worse. And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, that little place he wanted to go. He realized it wasn't such a great place. And he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. I think their world was very small in their own mind, and so they figured it was just kind of wiped out. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow, hey, that works so well, I got another plan. And it came to pass on a morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, and go thou in and lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. This is not good. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Benami. The same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Now, I try to put myself in this position as a guy. I don't understand this. I don't understand some of the details of this. I mean, I comprehend and I accept it, but, yeah, so... You know, I mean, we're just going from bad to worse. Lot, here, take my daughters. And now this is going on. And yet God is still involved actively in the midst of all of this, bringing about his promise to Abraham. All right, so let's go now into chapter 20. And Abraham, this is where the chapter I was reading this morning, and I just, uh, that's what got me thinking on. I wonder if this is a Torah portion. And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gera. And Abraham said unto, uh, and Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gera, sent and took Sarah. 
Now, this isn't the first time that we uh, find out that Abraham and Sarah did this. Back, and we won't turn because of time, but back in chapter 12, they had the same plan as to how to keep Abraham alive so that he doesn't get killed because they look at Sarah and say, wow, is she hot? Like, we better get rid of this guy if this is her husband. So that happened in chapter 12. And then when you get up to chapter 26, Isaac pulls the same thing. And I think it's very interesting. I forget, Isaac and Rebekah. You know, he has Rebekah do the same thing. Say, you're my sister. And, of course, in that case, she wasn't his sister. At least in this case, Sarah was uh, half sister. So, anyway. Uh, so, so Abraham said of Sarah's wife, verse 2, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerah, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. Now, I'm going to say this. I probably shouldn't, but I always say to God, God, how come you don't come to me in a dream? And that opens up the whole can of worms of where we are in the Messianic movement with dreams and visions and speaking in tongues and blah, 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 blah. I don't know where I am on this dreams and vision things. I ask God regularly on a basis. I said today, God, how come you don't give me dreams like this? But it seems like these dreams are specific epochal moments in which God is going to do something very significant. They're not just willy-nilly dreams that help you to figure out, oh, yes, from that dream I can realize that, you know, back when I was a kid this happened, and this is why I'm this way. And, you know, it seems to me that they're for specific purposes. They're not willy-nilly just dreams that you just, you know, go on the Internet now or find some teacher that can explain to you the meaning of the dreams and teach you how to explain and understand your dreams and get these messages from God. I'm having a hard time with that. Not saying it can't happen. If God wants to do that, I'm a ready candidate, just like with tongues. I've, I've asked God for over 40 years. God, I keep being told, I'm supposed to be speaking in tongues, that if I really have the Spirit of God and you're really moving and working in me, I need this evidence. And I was kind of going to speak on some of that before I decided to do this. Anyway, I don't know what to say about this dream movement that is kind of permeating the Hebraic messianic movement i'd say be weary of it beware sorry be wary of it be cautious um just because somebody wears a tallit and a kippah and and has on seats and worships on shabbat doesn't necessarily mean they are a child of god <laughs> i don't want to get upset about this it's just like in christianity just because somebody shows up at the church on Sunday with a Bible in their hand and they know the lingo and they do the right stuff and say the right stuff, it doesn't mean necessarily they're a child of God. We have to get our minds wrapped around that. We've been hoodwinked. And you know why? Because there's part of what I was going to say, we're still Greek in our thinking. If people can amass the right knowledge and therefore give mental assent to it and out comes the right words, they're in. But that's Greek thinking. Hebraic thinking is, we're going to see where this goes because as Yeshua said, just stand back a little bit. You'll know them by their fruit. Um, and that's where we start to need to be fruit inspectors, for lack of a better term. I mean, how horrible. When you get in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23, these people are out there casting out demons, doing miracles and preaching in the name of Yeshua. And he says, hey, sorry, guys. You weren't mine. I never knew you. I feel bad for those people because they were probably part of a Hebraic Messianic congregation and nobody wanted to just put them to the test. Or maybe they went to first or second or third Baptist somewhere. But because they're in and speak all the right language and all these evidences are being manifested, we just assume because we're so Greek in our thinking, well, they must be in. So, I'm trying to read Judy's lips, she's got something she's saying over there. So, anyway, I don't even know where I am anymore. Six. Okay, verse 6. So, God said unto him in a dream. I, I love this. Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. See, God knows what's going on in our hearts. So, when I said earlier, sometimes scary that God knows what we're thinking... The flip side is it's really good that God knows at times what we're thinking and knows the integrity of our heart. That's what David said, thou desirest truth in the innermost being. And I have to believe in part that's why God didn't just annihilate David because God knew that these temporary things that he did wrong weren't at the core of who he was. And we can take heart that when you sin... 
And when I sin, God doesn't immediately annihilate us because he knows the integrity of our heart. Who here doesn't deserve to have been dead already? 14 zillion times over, right? Why? Because, one, he's long-suffering. Two, being his children, he knows in our hearts we don't want that. So anyway, uh, verse 6. I love this. Continuing on. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Do you think Abimelech knew this? He had no idea that God was kind of now intervening and protecting him and keeping him safe from doing something that would just bring the wrath and judgment of God upon him. I can remember reading a note by Matthew Henry years and years ago when we were visiting my wife's uh, sister and, and my brother-in-law out in Iowa. I was sitting in the garage having devotions. I forget where I was reading, but it was. I, I decided to see what Matthew Henry had to say. Matthew Henry said, in essence, I'm putting this all to words, be thankful that God just does not annihilate us because we have deserved it. And be thankful that God has supernaturally intervened and kept you from going down a path, which you would have gone down if he hadn't supernaturally intervened and you would have known the wrath and judgment of God on your life. God stepped in and kept, probably unbeknownst to Abimelech, him from doing that which would have brought God's judgment. And I know in my own life that I've gotten close to the edge. Always reminds me of the song by the group, yes, close to the edge, down by the river. You know, getting close to that edge. But somehow God intervenes. And we have to thank God for that in ways that we don't even know about. Because there's probably not one of us that wouldn't have gone down a path that would have brought destruction. But God somehow intervened on our behalf. I love that. Verse 7. Now, therefore, restore the man his wife. Oh, this is so good. Because I would be so embarrassed if this was me. God, why did you have to tell them this? Couldn't you just let me slink on out of here? This has just got to be so, for me, humiliating, embarrassing. And... And what made me think of it this way was this, and I probably shouldn't share this. But yesterday, I'm trying to learn to be a bus driver, a school bus driver. So I'm in training and all that. So I'm going down to this pickup. It's, it's, it's way down in, in Hudson, which is a long way from Manchester, and I won't get into it. But I have to pick up two girls, sisters. So I get down to the end of the road. It comes to a T. I've been driving 35 minutes probably at this point. At the light... You know, I can now go, but I take a left-hand turn, and as I take the left-hand turn, there's just, just, just tons of traffic there. There's a bunch of cars lined up, and then behind those cars is a bunch of school buses, at least six to eight school buses. There's a lot of them, then cars after that. So I'm in driving my school bus to come to the school to pick up my two students, and I'm so new at this, it's just none of this computed. So I see halfway down the row of the buses, school buses, that this one bus has its nose pulled out just a little bit. Now remember, they're like bumper to bumper. I don't know, probably all the other school buses had their red lights flashing, emergency flashes showing because that's what you're supposed to do in a situation like that. Now I'm seeing this bus with its nose sticking out a little bit. I, I, I don't know if it went over the, the double line. I think it did, but these buses have cameras that show outside, inside, everywhere side. So whether or not she crossed the double, I don't know and perhaps didn't. But I'm thinking, why is the bus pointed out that way? And then, for some reason, then as I'm driving down, I notice, well, wait a minute. That bus is the only one that has that little stop sign sticking out. And I'm trying to take in what in the world is going on here. You know, all these buses, one in the middle, this one in the middle, its nose is pointing out into the oncoming lane, maybe at least in its direction. And it's the only one with a stop sign. And I'm trying to compute all this, and I drive, blow right past it. And while I'm doing it, I hear horn, the bus's horns, honk, honk, honk. Well, I should have stopped. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what the stop sign means. And I did just like other people have done. You just blow on by because you're not really paying attention or cognizant of it. So I have a point to all this. Um, so I get to the school. I drive there. I'm always the first one there, probably 15, 20 minutes ahead. And I'm talking with Caitlin on the phone, just bemoaning the fact of what I just did. I'm just down in the dumps. It's like, I'm a school bus driver, and look what I just did. 
And so there's one of the ladies that drives a school bus. I had been talking with her off and on for you know a few different days in the past. And I'm sitting there talking to Caitlin on the phone, and her bus pulls behind me. She comes walking up to my door, and I, I, don't, I, I know what this is going to be. I open the door. She says, I have a few words for you. And she just reamed me out. She just reamed me out, not meanly. She didn't yell at me, but she reamed me out. And I had already, she, she said, when she said, I have whatever she said, I said, I know, I know, I know. I said, believe me, I feel bad about it. And then I said, well, you know, this is why. I said, not to excuse it. And she said, I know. Yeah, this one bus in the middle of these buses with the stop sign out. She said, I've had this happen many times where people just blow right on by me. So now I get thinking, it's like, okay, if this is such a, chronic problem you need to line up your buses differently or do something differently here because multitude of people are getting confused and she said yeah even after you I two or three cars just blew right on through and so you know that's I'm trying to justify myself a little bit here I although I, I maybe I wasn't quite as an idiot as I think I was but anyway she reamed me out this is what's going to happen now to Abraham verse 7 now therefore restore the man his wife for he's a prophet and he shall pray for thee. <laughs> I love this. I'd be so embarrassed. And thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning. He's going to take care of this. And called all the servants and told all these things in their ears. And the men were so afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What have you done? You know, Abraham opens up the school bus door and the lady's yelling at him. What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee that thou hast brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. See, I don't know that I ever read it that way, like I'm reading it today after yesterday. You know, it put me in how Abraham might have been feeling. He's getting ringed out by this guy. He said, what have you done? Why haven't done? You know better than this. You're a prophet of God for crying out loud. You know, you're a school bus driver. You need to know better. Verse 10, Abimelech said unto... Uh, where am I here? Okay, and Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done? done this thing and Abraham said just like me oh well not to justify myself but let me tell you because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will slay me for my wife's sake and yet indeed she is my sister she's a daughter of my father but not the daughter of my mother and she became my wife so this is what we call a little white lie it's not really telling the truth and it's not not telling the truth not just necessarily but you know, the whole scenario. Yeah, she's my wife. And then, guy, you got to think about that. Abraham saying, yep, here's Sarah, take her. Right? This is pretty bad stuff, is it not? This is bad stuff. You know, and we're going to find out this was the plan they had from when they left. When they really originally left where they were from, uh, Ur, the Chaldean, I'm getting ahead of myself, hope I don't mess up the details. They came up, Abraham came up with this plan ahead of time. Wherever we go, say that you're my sister for my sake. And this is a guy that God is saying, in your seed shall all the earth be blessed. I mean, you have to admire God because he shows us the good and the bad. It's like Judah. Judah did some horrific stuff. And yet God uses Judah. But aren't you glad because he still uses us. All right, so verse 13. And it came to pass, yeah, here we go. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is the kindness which thou show unto me. At every place whither we shall come, say of me, He is thy brother. And I immediately thought, it's like, Judy never would have bought into this. <laughs> it just, yeah, I argue, yeah, right. You can go on this journey by yourself if that's what you expect of me, you know. 
And good for her. Verse 14, I mean, that's good, so she thinks that. So Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah's wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleases thee. Now, now he lets Sarah have it. And unto Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given thy brother, he doesn't say thy husband, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, she's, he's, now he's basically saying, Listen, you need to let everybody know he's your husband. Because he is a covering to you, behold, he, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. So not a prophet and his wife have been reamed out by, I don't know if Abimelech's a believer in God or not, but here you have, I'm going to say it this way, this unsaved heathen king that is being spoken to by God in a dream, reaming out the prophet of God and his wife. <laughs> And basically, this is the problem the world has with us. They look at us and say, you're worse than we are. You're worse, you're the bigger hypocrite than I am. But we still are the light of the world. And God still somehow wants to use us. And he lets the world know, Gosh, I, if I was God, I'd be embarrassed to death. <laughs> it's just like when I was a young kid, I think in first grade, and all the traffic went by the house. It was lined up from the factory that I got let out. And one day I was up at my friend's house, about three houses from mine, I got this bright, bright idea when the cars were just parked dead stop because it came to a four-way intersection at the time. They had a cop, and so it took, I mean, it was a whole mile long worth of cars. I got the bright idea, where am I going with this? Oh, of throwing, there was a rock by my friend's uh, 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 post or whatever it was about the size of you know, uh, I don't know a small football I thought, boy, wouldn't it be fun to just pick that thing up and throw it on the hood of the car right there and I'm like five feet away the car's like right there, I don't know what I'm thinking so I pick up this rock, I just toss it boosh, lands on the hood of the car big dent, I, I don't know what I thought I probably think, I wonder what would happen if I throw it at it you know, so all of a sudden this guy looks at me. My friend's right there. I bolt through the backyard. I mean, I take off, wiggle around, get finally back to my house. I go upstairs, and next thing I know, because he talked to my friend, who's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna. Yeah, he lives over there. So this guy shows up with my dad and talks to my dad, and I'm upstairs in my bedroom, and I'm looking down in the driveway, and they're talking. Thankfully, they're laughing and have a good time. But I'm thinking, if I was my father, I would be so embarrassed right now. And that's my point with this. I, I tend to think of God, if I was God, I would be so embarrassed that, that my chosen vessel has just done what he's done. But somehow God works in works through all of that stone throwing on other people's cars that we do. And somehow he still loves us. And still somehow he, he owns us as his own. He doesn't say, yeah, I don't know. No, he's not my kid, sorry. Somebody else's kid don't know him. And that's the love of the father to his son, to his children. All right, so he reams out Sarah. I got to get going here. Maybe we won't make it through. Uh, so verse 17. So Abraham prayed unto God. <laughs> God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. Why? For the Lord had closed up all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You know? All right. So let's just keep going. I'll try to make this quick. 21. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that here will laugh with me. So she had, I guess, a good attitude. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son 
uh, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham. So Abraham, don't forget, has this other son born by this other woman. It's not Sarah's son. Right? Verse 10. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac, which is, I thought this morning, I said, this is where Luke needs to preach this talk, because he could take us into Galatians and, and, and deal with, the, you know, what the deeper meaning is of all this. I just, we're going to move on. So it says, verse in 11, And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of the bondwoman. And all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. Now, this just blows my mind, because I don't think I would have sent her away with such skimpy provisions as Abraham did. I don't get this. Verse 14. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child said, Yeah, have a nice journey. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle. And she cast a child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were, a bow shot. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him opposite him and lift up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. This is so interesting. I want to know what the lad was doing. You know, what did he say? I would have thought that it would have been, and God saw Hagar and was moved with compassion. But it says, God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And this is so cool, and I'm glad God does it for us. There is sometimes the necessity of God being able to take off the blinders of our own sight to see what he wants to do for us and in and through us. So verse 19. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So, I mean, this is a divided household. You know, a father, I guess, has to go along with what God said to do, but I don't know, I, I have to believe, I want to believe, this is just ripping Abraham's heart to shreds. It made me think of when uh, we were living in Arizona, and Torn was just a little thing still. He was my best buddy, still is. You know, I did everything with him, and he helped me just keep my head together because he was my buddy. And so, but then, and then there's this one day where Luke and Mary Lee are sitting in their truck, pulling, I think, a trailer behind them. I don't know if he had a trailer or not, leaving to go, leaving Arizona to go back to New Hampshire. And I'm at the the truck, the dually, and at the back door, Torn was sitting at the back right hand door, sitting in his car seat, and I'm looking at him. And I'm just telling him, I'm going to miss you so much, buddy. And it's ripping my heart out. Like nothing has ever ripped out my heart ever before or ever since. Just want to make that very clear. And Torn saw something in my eyes and in my face and in my tone. And his eyes just got big and it almost looked like a horror came upon his face. And I hugged him and kissed him and told him I love him. Told him, don't forget me. And closed the door and off they drove. I just have to believe that that's a little bit of what Abraham went through when he had to let his son go. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I don't know. To me, this is a sad scenario. You know, I don't like divided families. I, I hate divided families. Um, it's so sad. And the ramifications and the fallout from that oftentimes is just not good. Verse 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Philcol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee, and all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, because he knows he's a liar maybe, I don't know. But according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech. 
because of a well of water, which Abraham's servant had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I wot not uh, who hath done this thing, neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it but today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, Abraham, what mean these seven ewe lambs, which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shalt thou take in my hand, that they may be a witness unto me, that I have this wealth. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and filled coal the chief captain of his host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. Now, chapter 22. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Now, I know it says tempt. Other translations say test. To me, this word, whether it's in the Hebrew or Greek, I think it's the same coin both sides. It's a test. It's a temptation. Any test is a temptation. I know God doesn't tempt us, but the test becomes what then becomes for us a possible temptation. Will I sin or not? Will I disobey God? So we find out here that God did tempt, did test Abraham. And I think it's a test of will Abraham take God at his word? God had promised to Abraham that of Isaac, his seed would prosper. And out of this seed that many nations would come to know the true God. So I've wrestled with what Abraham must have been thinking, what I would have been thinking. What is this test all about? It's whether or not we can take God at his word, even when it gets right down to the last split second. Because God had promised in Isaac, shall Abraham's seed prosper. Right? Am I not right? Somebody shake your head. All right. I think that's the test. And this test is the same for you and I. God has said in his word. The enemy comes along and says, yea, hath God said. And therefore, we wrestle back and forth. You know, we can believe in God's word as soon as, you know, as long as it goes according to how we think it should go quickly. Right? But when it drags on and on and on, and God seems to be like over in South Siberia someplace, tending to everybody over there, and you're thinking, God, hello, hello. And man, you're getting closer and further and more into this thing, and God's not acting. But God, you said you'll never leave me or nor forsake me. You said you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we'll never know the reality of that until we're put to the test. And it's no fun. It's no fun. Verse 2, and he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Now is it his only son? No. Does he not love uh, Ishmael? Right, it's Ishmael, right? Yes, he does. But this is the son of the promise, right? It's the son of the promise. Take now thy only son whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. There's the test. God one, is he going to have me do something that I know I'm not supposed to do? Take the life? Take the life of my own son? Or is he thinking, you know what? Huh, huh, huh. i got to take my, my little buddy Torn, and God wants me to take him to Moriah and have all the wood and everything ready to go, place him on an altar, and have the knife in my hand. Go on, God. Whoa, can you imagine the drama of this? This is horrific stuff. We read it sometimes. I read it sometimes, and I don't stop long enough to think about what is really going on. This is real. This happened. And the reality of his tests are the reality of our tests. Are we going to trust God? So verse 3, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. Oh no, there it is, it's reality. Ah, it's getting closer, closer. I, you know, it's like the first night's sleeping. All right, I got a couple days, second night. Ah, now there it is, there it is. 
Verse 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I don't really know what he thought. Did he really believe that? I want to believe it. But on the other hand, I can think if it's me, it's like, I can't tell these guys I'm going out there to kill my son. i got to come up with something else. You know, and I'm reading into this. This is just my thinking. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto his fa- uh, Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, here, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And I know there's a debate on this. Is God saying he's going to provide himself? Or is it saying that God is, don't worry, God's going to provide something? I, I take the latter. I don't. I want to think it's, 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 a, it's, it's a, a prophecy of God is going to come in the flesh and die. And I'm not discounting that, and there's probably a drosh on that. But I tend to take it initially myself that God's going to take care of this. You know, you're not going to die. There's going to be a ram caught in a thicket. You didn't tell him all this. Don't worry. Trust God. You're not going to die in your sins. He's provided a sacrifice for your sins. I, I think there's definitely application. All right, so verse 9. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. Oh, come on, God, it's getting really close. Come on, God, 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 do something here, do something here. But he doesn't. Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, sometimes you might want to do that to your son. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. you got to imagine. Abraham's heart is just, ah, ah. You know, maybe, me, I'm hoping, yeah, while well, I'm walking up here, God say, okay, God, uh, Abraham, that's good enough. You're willing to do it. You can turn around now. I never in my wildest expectation would I expect God to have me have the knife in my hand. And Abram stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And at the last moment, the angel of the Lord, verse 11, called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, this is quick as I'm sure Abraham ever responded. Yeah, I'm right here, I'm here, I'm here. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Does God not know that? Yes, he knows that. But God, being a just God, has to... How do I say this? See how our actions are borne out. Because God can't just... It appears to me. Judges, based upon, you know, we have those movies futuristically. I think there's one where Tom Cruise, where, they, where the thought police know that that person in the future is going to do a, a crime and therefore arrest them ahead of time. Well, they haven't done it yet. How can they be guilty? We know you would do that. Well, God, I don't think, I'm talking off the top of my head here, does that. He seems to be the judge that does it right. So it's, it's our actions that God uses upon which he's going to, Faces judgment is not that he doesn't know, but he needs to know by means of experience of what we have done so that we don't stand before him and say, what are you, the thought patrol? I didn't do it. How can you judge me? Well, yes, he is a thought patrol, but God as a judge that does right waits. All right, so, so now here we go, and i got to finish this up. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. It's kind of like Hagar not seeing a well. <laughs> Where'd this ram show up? You know, and Abraham went and took the ram, probably 100 miles an hour, took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Good, it's dead, my son's alive. And Abraham called the name of that place Yehovah Yireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. I think that means be obedient to God in the midst of whatever trial you're going through, no matter how difficult the mountain may seem to be. So easy to preach this stuff. I don't do well at it when it comes to that time, I'll be honest. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven a second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, 
And in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. Doesn't always look like it, but God knows the end. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That is just huge. You would think anybody, see, this is how I read stuff like this. I don't sit back and say, well, those filthy Jews, I'm not going to, you know, submit to them. You know, I just have this thing, wow, if God says that there's blessing somehow connected to this people, this is kind of what our country did. You know, we're going to stand with Israel. Kind of kind of got a little iffy there under the last president, the one still now. Um, oh, sorry. You stand with Israel no matter what condition they're in. Somehow God chooses to bless. So, and in thy seed, 18, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they arose and went down together to Beersheba. And Abraham skipped all the way there and dwelt in Beersheba. I mean, you talk about a load off of somebody's shoulder. And it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, she hath also borne children unto thy brother Nahor. I love this. Huzz and buzz. Who would do that? Yes, I click and clack the cats. You know, Huzz and Buzz. Huzz the firstborn, Buzz his brother. And Kamel, the father of Aram, and Chesed, uh, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bil, uh, Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. This is taking us now into the next lake. These eight Milka did bear to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, whose name was uh, Ruma, she bare also Teba and Gaham and Tathash and Mega. And we made it. I don't know how long I went. What's the time of this thing say? I'm afraid. To, can I touch the white button? Yeah. How long have I been? Ooh, an hour and five minutes. Okay. But I, I just felt it was worth the time if you were able to hang through with all this. There's just so much, I think the word's pathos in this, human drama. We see people at their worst, lying, offering up their daughters, you know, for wicked men to have. Then those daughters do what they do with the dad. <laughs> and Abraham, the friend of God, lying, comes, hatches this elaborate plan, lives wherever he goes, say, you're my sister. She jumps on that bandwagon and, I mean, oh, without preaching this all over the place. <laughs> Don't you take great comfort in all this? I'm greatly encouraged. And because we know Yeshua, we are a part of the true seed, right? And we are Israel. And God's blessings, though we may not always see it that way, are upon us and upon our children and our children's children if we will follow him and obey him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I, I am just so moved by this passage, as I've said. It gives me great encouragement. It helps me to see who you are as God, as judge, as Father. And then I'm able to see how you interact as God in relation to your children when they are even at their worst. I don't understand it, but I thank you for it, and I need to understand that. That in the midst of this, even at my worst, at my lowest, you are still my Abba Father. And I find great comfort in that. And I thank you that we have the comfort of Abba Father because we've come to that point in our life, those of us who are saved, where we trusted in Yeshua as the payment for our sin, the sin offering, realizing we would be lost for all eternity, separated from God, but that Yeshua died in our place because we've accepted him and what he has done on our behalf. The Holy Spirit resides within us. We've been born from above, born again, made a new creation in Yeshua. And now we can look to you and realize you are our Abba Father, our Daddy. It's beyond me. It's beyond all of us. But I thank you for it. In Yeshua's name, amen.